What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to the show, the podcast. And I teased it. I teased you all last week. I told you we were going to have a huge, enormous, important, very nice man as our guest this week. And boy, did I deliver. It's Mr. Bob Kendrick, everybody. Clap your hands. Say hello, Mr. Kendrick. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Kenny, man, it's my absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course, of course. You, As soon as we learned that storylines and the history of the Negro Leagues were coming into MLB The Show, you were at the top of the list of people I would hope to get on the show, and I eventually just said, you know what, today's the day to reach out. And so it worked. <laughs> um, I wanted to start just by congratulating you and the Negro League Museum on everything that's come your way in the last really six months, but probably even beyond that, with the beginning of conversations with um, SDS and you guys will be hopefully moving into a new building soon, which is just amazing. Yeah. Uh, congratulations on everything. Yeah, no, no. That's one of the reasons why I'm encouraging everybody to keep buying MLB The Show uh, and help support the museum and this move for a new Negro Leagues Baseball Museum that we announced, a new 30,000 square foot state-of-the-art standalone facility that we are planning to build. And we couldn't be more excited about this next phase of growth for the museum and and this partnership that we have with Sony PlayStation, San Diego Studios. It has been tremendous. And I am overwhelmed by the tremendous response that the inclusion of the Negro Leagues have had amongst the gaming community. We certainly hoped that that would be the case. Mm -hmm. But you don't know when you venture into these projects and you know, I would be remiss if I didn't tip my cap to my friend Ramon Russell and the entire crew over at PlayStation who put their hearts and souls into this project. Now, I'm sure they do with every project that they represent. But you could tell, Kenny, that this hit a little different. Very with, much so. Yeah, that you could tell uh, and the pride that emanates from the work and you can feel it in the game itself. Uh, it, it is absolutely amazing. And kind of a two-parter here, but just for comparison, it's a new 30,000 square foot building, which is massive and amazing and great. What are you guys operating out of now and how much is in storage? I'm sure you guys have so much that's not being shown just because you don't have the ability to. Yeah, we, we operate in a 10,000 square foot exhibit space now and it is intimate, it is powerful and compelling. Mm -hmm. And We've just quite simply outgrown it. But, you know, it's really interesting that when you start the way that we started in a one room office, a fraction of the size of my office, <laughs> when you move to 10,000 square feet, you feel like you've got an overwhelming amount of space. And the question was, how in the world will we ever fill this space? <laughs> but over the course of those years, now about 26 years in our new home, 33 years as an organization, we've outgrown this space. There are so many stories that should be told. They need and deserve to be told. And we just quite simply don't have the space to tell. I wish I could tell you that we had an abundance of artifacts because we just simply don't because it's so competitive out there. Yeah. Private collectors are the ones that have most of the items. And we're always trying to figure out ways get more of these items home to the Negro Leagues Museum. Because as you can well imagine, anytime that we acquire a piece, there is no insignificant piece. Mm -hmm. There's always a story behind it. And we're working diligently 
to try and make connections with these private collectors in hopes that they will allow some of these pieces to come home to Kansas City, even if it's in a loan arranged fashion. Mm -hmm. So we've got some work to do, but I do think that a new museum will aid us in this process as we put out a national call for memorabilia to help us bring more of these stories to life. But we're talking about three times the space, an expanded gift shop space, you know, all these things that will help every aspect of operations mm -hmm. for the museum. And so it's going to be, I think, a very fitting home for the Negro Leagues and social history as we build what I refer to as a Negro Leagues campus, because the building that the Negro Leagues were formed in is going to be the anchor of this new museum, That's the Paseo YMCA which we've been working to save that historic landmark and going to convert it into an education and research center in memory of the late great Buck O'Neill. Mm -hmm. So now you, it's about 40,000 square feet of space. And then you add another 30,000 square feet yeah, to the museum that will essentially be attached to it. That's why I call it a Negro Leagues campus. And it will be the only one of its kind in the world and we couldn't be more excited about the opportunity. So you you mentioned storytelling, and I think one of the things, I know one of the things that has resonated so much with the way MLB The Show has utilized everything that's been created is because of the storytelling. I think the storytelling yeah. is what's pushed it so far in front of anything of its kind. There really isn't anything of its kind, being exactly. honest. So, exactly. You know, and... When the announcement first came out that the Negro Leagues would have representation in MLB The Show, of course, the community was largely excited. We didn't know in what form it would be. We waited and we learned. And then when we watched the hour-plus reveal of what was coming into the game and the emotion, like you said, of Ramon, it very clearly was not performative. And it very clearly you know, showcased how much emotion went into this and how much depth and research and care. And it just, it seems and feels intimate. So what has it been like largely working with this team and what has been the storytelling behind it? How did that all come together? You know, I relate to them the way that this story hit me when I was first introduced to it. Those young people, this was a passion project. It mm -hmm. is a passion project because we have a five-year partnership with Sony to continue to tell stories and introduce more players into the video game itself. And based on the overwhelming response that we've seen now, I think we are certainly trending in the right direction to be able to fulfill that. And people seem to be very anxiously awaiting uh, the next release. And that's always exciting mm -hmm. when they want more. That's a, always a good thing. I felt all along that we were doing something that was pretty special. Now, I'm not sure I truly grasp how big this platform really is. Mm -hmm. But as a steward of the story, someone who walked into a little one-room office in 1993, when I first encountered the museum, I know how it struck me. It was love at first sight. 
because I, I was a baseball fan, and man, I quickly realized I didn't know a doggone thing <laughs> about the history of this game as it related to the history of this country. And, and I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with the athletes who made the story along with the story itself. And I just wanted to learn as much as I could. Didn't want to keep it to myself. And I wanted everyone to feel the same way that I felt about it. Well, I think that is exactly what has happened with this generation of young developers, game developers, and the, the entire team. Is Of course, it starts with Ramon. Because I can only imagine how challenging it had to be to try and convince folks to green light a project like this. You're right. In the gaming community, there had always been folks asking and hoping that one day the Negro Leagues would be part of a video game of some kind. But those are the ones who truly love the history of this uh, of the, the game of baseball. And, and so... I'm sure there were concerns whether or not this had mainstream enough footing for people to really wrap their arms around. And so to be able to sell this project alone was an amazing accomplishment. And then when they reached out to me and they wanted to make sure that they were managing my expectations on if we could get this done or not. And then the more we, we talked, the more stories that I told, it seems like the more interested they became and then all of a sudden, this became more than just a dream. It became very real. And the next thing I know, last year in August, man, full-fledged production crew here at the museum is lights, cameras, action. I'm in front of the camera telling stories. And I think the more stories I told, the more engaged and interested the team became. Initially, this was going to be a 24 release. And I think people felt like the content that we had generated was so good that they actually sped the timeline up and released it, of course, as you know, officially in March uh, of this year, right? That's very interesting. The baseball season was opening. And, and so the stories resonated. And that was the piece that I wasn't sure if the young gamer was going to appreciate the stories. What's not love about Satchel Page and Buck O'Neill mm -hmm. and Martin DeHigo? Hilton Smith, Hank Thompson, Ruth Foster. And for them to learn about Jackie Robinson as a member of the Kansas City Monarchs. You know, so what's not love about these extraordinarily talented athletes who, if anyone deserved to be in a video game, it would be the players from the Negro League. But it's the stories that I wasn't sure how that, that group of folks would respond to and it just seems like overwhelmingly they are loving the story. And so here I am in a video game. Who would have ever thought that old Bob would be in a video game? <laughs> so it's 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 funny you you say that. So in a different space, I can relate to the storytelling because in my in my real job, I'm a sports reporter. I'm a college sports, local sports reporter. I look for stories of people from whatever background they may be and try to give them their chance to shine. That's that's what I try to do when I'm looking out to tell a story. And in your case, you're doing it for people who should have already had them told. They just haven't had the opportunity to. But by doing that, you've intentionally or unintentionally, you've become part of the story. And I know as a storyteller in a different world, I want to shift the focus to the subject. So I know you do too. 
But what has it been like, this media whirlwind of like Bob Kendrick, the celebrity? What has it been like? <laughs> well, first and foremost, my granddaughter, Demi, thinks that it is the coolest thing ever <laughs> that a grandpa is in a video game. Yeah. And you know what? It is pretty doggone cool. I, I never thought about this kind of thing happening for me or for our museum and that we would get this kind of substantial platform for the history of the Negro Leagues and that folks would respond the way that they have. They're falling in love with these heroes of the Negro Leagues and the stories that I am sharing. And these are stories that for the better part, I heard firsthand from the players who lived them. They experienced them. I didn't live them. I was fortunate enough to hear them. And now I can articulate those stories to a new generation of those who are fans of MLB The Show, those who are fans of baseball history, and they are embracing these stories. And, and that's very gratifying. It really is. And the platform that has been provided, the care and consideration that went into every single detail of this game. Man, you are taken back, you know, in time. Mm -hmm. And you can almost feel the wool of the uniforms when you're playing this game. They look so good. Yeah, they, they really look do. so good. They yeah. do. And, and the stadiums, you know, everybody dressed up like they used to going to a Negro Leagues game. So the atmosphere, everything was top notch, you know. And when I went out to San Diego Studios, to kind of get the first glimpse of what the game was going to look like. It was emotional for all of us. I think there were a lot of tears flowing, but these were tears of joy. Mm -hmm. These were tears of tremendous pride because I think we realized that we had done something special. Now, again, like I mentioned, you don't know how the public is going to receive it, but we were all very happy with the content, the way that they had treated the Negro Leagues with the kind of respect that it absolutely deserved. And it's even more gratifying to see that fans of MLB The Show have absolutely embraced this product. And that first look that you did, I'm sure things obviously developed more so after that first look, but when you first see Satchel Paige's delivery in a video <laughs> game, when, when you first see the batting stance of Hank Thompson, I'm sure it blows you away, but were you surprised at how accurate that oh. it was. I mean, again, obviously, Satchel Page. There, there's more video of him than other people. Yeah, but, exactly. But it looks pretty darn good to me, man. And that, and that, and that's what I talk about. No detail spared here. Mm -hmm. And as I met every, I won't say everyone, but almost everybody who worked on this project, when I was making my way through San Diego Studios, it was love. It was passion. They wanted to get this right, a and they did. They did. And again, we talk about passion, and passion is what drives this story itself. And it's passion what drove, it, it, it's passion that has driven these young people, in particular, to put their hearts and soul behind something, a piece of history that they were essentially removed from, they've been detached from. Mm -hmm but they embraced it because they understand how important it was to get this right. And, and they've done it and they've done it masterfully. It is just a beautiful video game experience. Now, the funny thing was, Kenny, 
them trying to teach me how to play the game. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to, I was going to get to that at some point. What's the experience level like? I mean, how, how are we doing on the sticks when we're playing the game? Oh man, there's too many buttons for me. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes there's too many buttons for me and I play it almost every day. It's, it's not an easy game if we're being completely oh, honest. Oh man, the dexterity that it requires. And, you know, I, I'm watching how skillful people are playing the game, knowing where all these buttons are and, that's a long way removed from a joystick or or what have you from the days that I was playing Atari and Pong <laughs> and that kind of thing. But no, man, it has been just, I, I couldn't be happier because one of the things that I talk about all the time, and while I think it's true for any museum, but particularly a history cultural institution like ours, is that we have to find ways to create relevancy. I have to make this history relevant to what's happening in your life, the lives of other young adults and young people. And again, this is a history that hadn't been played in over six decades, uh, a league that hadn't existed in over six decades. Although I've always felt that the life lessons that stem from the story of triumph over adversity are just as significant and meaningful today than ever before, maybe even more meaningful today than ever before. Especially with everything that's been going on in the world Absolutely. the last however many years. I mean, forever, but specifically forever, but we're talking the last couple of years. These have been magnified over yeah. recent years as we deal with race relations, hate, which has kind of resurfaced in ways in which we thought we had moved beyond. And so through the lens of these incredibly talented and courageous athletes, we kind of gain an understanding of how to handle adversity. And that's what I remind people all the time. The players in the Negro Leagues never cried about the social adversity. They went out and did something about it. You won't let me play with you, I create my own. Mm -hmm. and, and there's something very American about that spirit. And these are the messages that we are trying to deliver to particularly our student age audiences. But there are adults who are responding to this as well, because there are so many people, Kenny, who walk through our doors at the Negro League Baseball Museum, and they are blown away. They are amazed by what they learn. But to be quite frank, they are a little bit dismayed by the fact that I just now had an opportunity to learn it. It you should be taught in schools. It's not taught absolutely. in schools. Yeah. So you leave questioning how in the world could I not know something as substantial as this story? And what we know is that American historians did us all a tremendous disservice. They kept this wonderful chapter of baseball and Americana away from us. So countless generations of us have gone through our own formal educations without knowing one of the most significant chapters, not in just baseball history, but in American history. And, and so you wanna learn I think as human beings, and this is something that the late great Buck O'Neill would oftentimes say, I want to learn something every single day. I, I think learning just kind of keeps you young, mm -hmm. it keeps your mind active, and, and that's a good thing. I want to learn something. I want to meet someone new every single day. And that's what we're trying to do with this story, help people understand those who kind of paved the way those who overcame tremendous social adversity 
to play the game they love. But it was all about passion and love of the game. What do you think Buck O'Neill would have thought of all of this? Now, baseball video games probably weren't in the lexicon of, of, of his life, and maybe he could not actually grasp the scope of what we're talking about here just because it's a relatively new age thing. But what would he have thought about this type of public prominence that you guys have had lately? Well, for Buck, education was always at the forefront of his existence. So I think he would be just absolutely thrilled that we found a unique avenue to educate. You know, for me, I look at it as edutainment because learning is at its optimal when you are learning and having fun. And those who are playing this game, and I've had educators reach out to me saying that they are going to incorporate the game into their classroom curriculum. That's amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. And it just touches you, man, because it just verifies that we have indeed done something special utilizing this platform and, and giving the Negro Leagues this voice. And for me, I've always believed that experiential learning is the most significant and meaningful way for us, any of us, but particularly children, to learn because you retain it. Mm -hmm. So when you are learning and you don't know that you're learning, that's when it's at its best. You retain that. And as I've been walking through the museum and people have been coming, these are kids coming up to me. And first and foremost, they want me to know you in the show. Yeah, yeah, you in the show. <laughs> That's what I say, you're a celebrity. <laughs> and then they want to tell me what they've learned. And, and so recently I was giving a tour of the museum to some potential investors we are working on a project to bring Major League Baseball, expansion Major League Baseball, to the great city of Nashville. And I'm going to speak it into existence. When we're successful, <laughs> the team would be called the Nashville Stars, named for the old Negro Leagues team that was there many years ago. That'd be great. It would be the first time ever that a Major League team would carry the brand and name of a Negro Leagues team. So I'm walking these folks through the museum, and we get out on the field of legends where all the life-size statues are of Negro leaguers and they're cast in position as if they were playing a game. I'm biased, but I think it is one of the most amazing displays in any museum anywhere in the world. And so, Kenny, as I so typically do, I go through the litany of introductions of the players who adorn the field. And you know who's on the mound, the legendary Leroy Satchel Page. And I'm telling Satchel stories. And as you know from the video game, they didn't just give Satchel the four-seamer or the curveball mm -hmm. spider. They used the names of his pitches. And, and those who I'm sure played the game realized that Satchel had names for his pitches. So he didn't have fastball, curveball, changeup. Not Satchel. He had what he called, of course, his midnight creeper, the two-humper, the bat dodger, the hesitation pitch, the long tom, the short tom, the jump ball, the trouble ball, the radio ball the wobbly ball, the dipsy do. And as I would so customarily do, he had a pitch that he called the B-ball. Mm -hmm. And I would always raise the question, or pose the question, do you know why he called it the B-ball? And before I could barely get the question out, there was a young white kid with his dad, couldn't have been any more than nine, 10 years old. He raises his hand and he looks at me. He says, Mr. Kendrick, I know why he called it the B-ball. 
I say, you do? He says, yes, because Satchel says, it bees where I want it to be when I want it to be there. And I looked at him, I said, man, you must have been playing the show. And his daddy said, yes, he's been playing the show and he's been paying attention to the stories that you're sharing in the game itself. And another gentleman hit me on social media, said he had bought the show for his young son and was gonna go upstairs to see if his son needed any help navigating through the game. And when he opens the door, he said his son is sitting there intently listening to me tell a story. And he said he did not want to interrupt the moment. <laughs> he quietly backs out of the room, closes the door, and leaves his son with me to share this history. Man, that is what touches you. That's, That's mission accomplished, right? Mission accomplished. That's exactly what we hope mm -hmm. would happen. And, and that's why I think this video game project is one of the most significant things that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum has ever embarked on. That's amazing. Um, so when I was playing through the storylines mode, and I've spoken with friends who play the game who've done the same thing, we're taken aback at some of not just the storytelling, but that attention to detail, like the b-ball and um, <laughs> the the instance we have to play through when Satchel Page's fielders come take a knee behind him while he's on. <laughs> that was amazing. And that leads me to saying this in the most respectful way possible. I think one of the only critiques of this is that there wasn't more sooner. We wanted, there's about an hour's worth of produced content that you did both on camera with well, the graphics and everything like that. So it leads me to saying, how much do you think was left on the cutting room floor? There's got to be some gold out there that's just not in the game. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. You know, I ran my mouth for about two days. So I know that. <laughs> so they've got hours worth of content. A bunch of stuff yeah. that probably didn't make it. And, uh, but no, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. That's good, man. It's a lot of work. Uh, but it was so much fun to sit down. And, and like I said, the guys who who came out to Kansas City and Ramon and the entire team, they've been a joy to work with. And uh, yeah, but I'm sure there was some stuff that didn't make it. Who knows? I'm sure they'll find some ways to utilize some of the additional content. And, you know, we're excited about the future of this project and the opportunity to introduce more players, more stories. Uh, and, and I'm just thrilled that people are anxiously waiting for future releases of this. And with your wheelhouse being the storytelling and not so much the video gaming or the game development, <laughs> what about this entire process production-wise surprised you most? Or what was maybe the most challenging for you to, to figure out? Well, I think for me, the stories, I won't say they just come easy, but... I guess at some point in time, I've gained this reputation as being, you know, a decent storyteller. I'd say so. Better than decent. <laughs> and, and as a storyteller, I don't know if there's any greater compliment that you can have than it is when someone says, I felt like I was there. Mm -hmm. I felt like I was there just listening to you tell the story. But what has happened in the video game 
And, and I think this speaks to the fact that I hope one day there is an animated TV series or certainly a TV series of some kind. You're not left to wonder what these stories look like. Mm. You don't just have to picture it in your head. They brought them to life. Yeah. Now you can see Satchel bringing in the outfield and sitting down the infield as he proceeds to strike out the side on nine straight pitches. <laughs> and, and you can also see the, the energy and the amazement that the young people are having with the swag that Satchel brought that would even give him the guile uh, and the nerves to call in the outfield and yep. sit the infield down. You know, and, and that's what I say. That's why I say that if anyone deserved to be in a video game, it was indeed the players from the Negro Leagues mm -hmm. because that's how they played the game. It is like stuff from a video game, the way they played the game, and now it is part of a video game. So for me, I think the beauty in which they bring these stories to life, that is the thing that I think I was so impressed with. Because uh, again, I hadn't played a video game in forever. I knew that the technology had allowed for graphic development to be, I mean, it's almost human-like, the way that they are able to do this. But when what they did with Negro Leagues, it seems as if they took it to a whole nother level. And again, it just demonstrates how beautiful those uniforms were. You know, when I'm sitting there, man, I'm Gorgeous. looking at these Kansas City Monarch uniforms. I'm looking at Ruth Foster in those Chicago American giant uniforms and they are absolutely spectacular. And it's introduced so many people to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, not just the history itself, but to this museum as the caretaker of this history. And I have already seen people who have come to visit this museum as a result of them playing the video game. That's the impact that this is having. And we're going to fill it in all aspects of the museum's operations through its turnstiles, through its gift shop, its online store. Obviously, there's royalty considerations that come along with the relationship that we have with Sony PlayStation mm -hmm. on this, this partnership. The generosity uh, of Sony PlayStation to put in a charitable component that is raising money in support of this museum. So no, this is, again, a game-changing kind of project for the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And you, you kind of mentioned what I wanted to ask you next about the value created for the museum. And, you know, firstly, you said education's clearly the most important thing. But secondly, if we're, you know, being realistic, this is marketing. This is, this is, of course. This is the best marketing you can get. So <laughs> what, what has the bump in, in volume been like in terms of visitors and, and, and donors and things like that? It's been crazy, man, because when we released the reveal video uh, uh, as part of a social media outreach, the first week on Twitter alone, I think the video was seen some 7 million times. It was, yeah, it was massive. It went viral very fast. Yes, it did. Yeah. And, and so I think at that point, it was almost a collective exhale because now you realize you have done something really special. Oh, the, the and, flames are stoked at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm just like in complete amazement, you know. Uh, but again, we were also very proud 
uh, of what we had accomplished collectively. And, but we're feeling those impacts, man. We're seeing donations increase, individual donors to this museum. We are seeing the numbers grow on our online store. We're trying to make sure we can keep up with the product demands. Uh, it's a good problem that, to have. It is a good problem to have. And, and I've met, you know, scores of people who have visited this museum, like I mentioned, because they play the video game and they had to come see it. And, and, and what has been even more heartwarming for me is they wanted to meet me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you, you're the man of the hour. Whether you want to be or not, you're the man of the hour. <laughs> um, so I have, we have about 15, 20 minutes left. And so I have here, not necessarily rapid fire questions. We could, we could uh -huh. dive into each one a little bit, but I kind of want to knock some of these out. Okay. It's more so about learning about the Negro Leagues itself. Yes. So in your mind, who would you say was the most misunderstood player from the Negro Leagues, if there was one? No, no. And, and you know, it's hard to say misunderstood because so many players in the eyes of mainstream baseball fans, they kind of toiled in anonymity mm -hmm. uh, for so long. But these are players, as you know, as fans of the game, you should know about. And for me, the story of Josh Gibson mm -hmm. is one that is oftentimes somewhat misconstrued because he has been, at least in my impression, mislabeled as a drug addict, alcoholic, when he wasn't. As Buck O'Neill would describe Josh Gibson, he was a gentle giant. Uh, Everybody wanted to be around Josh, but Josh was suffering from a brain tumor mm. and it was causing severe headaches. And by the time that he discovers that he has the brain tumor, he refused to have surgery because he was afraid that he'd be left in a vegetative state. And as you can well imagine, operating on the brain is tricky today, no less than the 1940s. Yeah. And so he would tragically succumb by way of stroke to that brain tumor, January 20th, 1947. So we try to dispel those myths and nomers, and misnomers, I should say, that surround these players who are, in many ways, mythical-like. You know, someone the magnitude of Josh Gibson, in essence, was our John Henry. Yeah, he was our John Henry. He's almost, the power is very much mythical, but as I tell people, <laughs> it was very real. And, and so you do get that from time to time, but more times than not, you are getting the amazement of just how incredibly talented these players are. People are falling in love with Martin De Higo. And it still is amazing that a player of his magnitude, most baseball fans, have, and these are fans, have never heard about El Maestro. I had never, and I consider yeah. myself a baseball fan, and I yeah. learned so no, much about him. No. Yeah enshrined into five different countries, baseball halls of fame. As you well know, the Mexican, Cuban, Venezuelan, Dominican, and in Cooperstown played all nine positions and played all nine of them well. <laughs> and, and no one had virtually ever heard of El Maestro. And again, you kind of question, how in the world could I not know about a ball player of this magnitude? But that is the plight of the Negro Leagues. Mm -hmm. And as my late mother would say, 
God bless her soul. You don't know what you don't know. And now we give you a chance to know. And that's what I'm saying. What's not to love about a player like El Maestro? You know, as, yeah. as my friend Monty Irvin would say, was a beautiful ball player. You know, almost statuesque. Six three six four, strong, movie star, good looks, had everything you needed to be a big star. And, and so what's not to love about a player like that? And so it doesn't surprise me that people are falling in love with these characters who many of them were larger than life, you know, as yeah. they are being introduced to them in the video game. And, and that that is something that we're just really, really excited about. It's it's almost ironic, poetic that these video game style characters, these players <laughs> who who are better than video game characters are being introduced in a video game. So video I, I, game. I noticed that parallel as soon as I started learning and listening to these storylines, because I'm like, that sounds like this guy's fake with how good he is. And I mean that in the best way possible, just because exactly. of how incredible they were. Exactly. Um, so as far, I think I might, or at least I have an idea of who I'd think this player is, but who was the most electric player? Would that be Jackie Robinson? Or is that just my misconception of not knowing enough? If we were just going to go back into the Negro League, mm -hmm. man, there's so many of them. There's so many of them. And I hope that later on down the line, we're able to introduce more of these guys to the game. Uh, cool Papa Bell. The minute he got on base, I think there was a collective, you know, people waiting because you mm -hmm. know he's going to run. You know he's going to run. He's going to do something special. He's going to do something that you haven't seen before. Yeah. Uh, Oscar Charleston, whom Buck O'Neill would say was the greatest baseball player he had ever seen. That Oscar Charleston was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays wow. was. And the old timers in the Negro League say the closest thing to Oscar Charleston would have been Willie Mays. And man, that is frightening. That's when crazy. you start yeah. thinking about the fact that there might have been ball players better than Willie Mays, Henry Aaron, both who come out of the Negro League. And, and you know what? There likely was. Because what I remind people all the time is they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. And they create the opportunity for Jackie to bring that exciting style of play that he brought with him over to the major leagues. But it's a style that he really kind of picked up while he was playing in the Negro Leagues. Yeah, now the Negro Leagues game itself was bold and daring and brash. You're going to bunt the ball. You're going to steal second, steal third. Oftentimes, they were stealing home. And so it was the pace of the game which so much quicker than Major League Baseball, which is part of the reason why it became a fan favorite because it was just different from the way that they played the game in the Major Leagues. Nothing against how they played the game in the Major Leagues, but it was a base-to-base -base kind of game. Guy got on base, you moved him over to second, the big hitters came up and drove him in. The Negro Leagues didn't play that way. You know, they had the guys that could knock the ball out the ballpark but they could do a multitude of things, and they did it all with flair. They all did it with style. Now, again, there was substance there. And, and I think sometimes that gets misconstrued. 
when you combine great fundamentals with great athleticism, Kenny, you're going to get something pretty special. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what you got when you start talking about these players from the Negro Leagues, man. They were exceptionally gifted athletes who could have played anything. They just chose to play baseball because that was really the sport that you could make a living. Team sport, for sure, that you could make a living from. Who would you say, or what location, what city would you say, had the biggest fanfare. Now I know the Monarchs were the cream of the crop. They were they were the team for such a long period in the league's history. But who would you say had the biggest fanfare around them? It'd be hard to look past the city of Pittsburgh. Okay. And, and the reason I say that is because they had two of the greatest baseball franchises, not in black baseball history, but in baseball history. And they were operating at one point in time at the same time. So you had, I call it a civil war of black baseball in Pittsburgh mm -hmm. with the great Homestead Grays and Pittsburgh Croppers. Man, I don't know if another city has boasted having as many Hall of Famers as you had there in Pittsburgh with those two teams. And while you're right, the Monarchs were by far perhaps the most successful and one of the longest running Negro League teams along with the Chicago American Giants. And the Monarchs sent more players to the major leagues than any other Negro League franchise. It too was a model organization, but in Pittsburgh, you had two of them. You had two of them. Now, eventually the Homestead Grades would call DC home. They would eventually move to Washington DC and play out of Griffith Stadium. But for a stretch there, man, baseball, black baseball in Pittsburgh was explosive. And you sometimes wonder, the Pittsburgh Pirates had all this talent in their backyard, man. Just imagine. Oh, it makes you, it just makes you wonder if someone had been aggressive enough to try and break the color barrier years before Jackie does, when you've got Josh and you've got Cool Papa Bell and Oscar Charlton and Ray Brown and Vic Harris, all these legendary stars right there in, in your midst, it would have changed the history of the Pittsburgh Pirates. And you can think, too, I mean, some of the best players in Pittsburgh Pirates history were black men or are black men. And it, it could have even extended well that before legacy that. would have extended. There's no question about it. Yeah, there's no question about it. And the Pirates where, you know, again, they have a great history but it would have been even greater mm -hmm. if someone had attempted to open the door with all that talent they had right there in their backyard. When we talk about a season, how many games were they playing? How many, like, was it in conjunction with the MLB season? Was it a separate portion of the year? How did they navigate all that stuff? They didn't play as many games as Major League Baseball did because, again, most of the Negro League teams didn't have their own stadiums. So you were renting the ballpark primarily from Major League teams, which is one of the reasons why it took so long to integrate because Major League Baseball was making money from the Negro League. <laughs> yeah. So the seasons were a little bit shorter because you had to get access to those stadiums. And now through barnstorming, they played hundreds of games a year because in, in essence, they were taking the game to places that didn't see Major League Baseball. They didn't see professional baseball of any kind. And 
that that is one of the primary reasons why the Negro Leagues really helped grow our game because they're riding into these small towns and playing the local teams or they may be traveling with another Negro League team and they play games in those communities and people would fill up the ballparks to come watch these games and they're falling in love with this game. Their reputation certainly preceded them. You know, when the Kansas City Monarchs were coming to town, Satchel Page and the Kansas City Monarchs were coming to town, everybody wanted to see that. So these entire towns would shut down to watch Satchel do his thing and, and his Kansas City Monarchs teammates come in because you'd heard about them. And, and so through barnstorming, I think the Negro Leagues effectively helped grow this game because it was being exposed to people who had never otherwise would have seen professional baseball. Now, you may have heard it on the radio in some instances, but you wouldn't have gotten to see it live. And the Negro Leaguers were bringing this game to the people. And to me, that's a side that is oftentimes overlooked in terms of all the things that they gave to this game. Now, I know you've had the honor of meeting, I'm sure, at least a handful of these, these legends you've been inspired by. Who are a couple you have not or did not have the chance to meet that you'd like to to hang out and have dinner with or or, or just have a conversation with? Who are a couple of those people? Man, Satchel Page and Cool Papa Bill. <laughs> uh, Is it because they play well off each other or you're just curious to, to meet them well, and learn more? I feel like I've met Satchel even though I never met him. Hmm. Satchel dies in 1982. I am a sophomore in college at then Park College, now Park University in Parkville, Missouri here just in the, in, in the Kansas City area, suburban Kansas City. He dies in 1982. And he used to hang out at an old gas station at on 31st and Prospect, they tell me. <laughs> but I never got to meet him. And like I said, I felt like I knew him through all the stories that Buck O'Neill and others told. But, you know, you know that he would be amazing to sit down with. Just watching some of the videos that I've seen of him relating stories you know it would be amazing to sit down over lunch or dinner or what have you with Satchel and cool Papa was just cool. You know, he, he I just, mean, with a name like that, I'd want to meet yeah, him too. Yeah, no, he's just the kind of guy that you just want to hang out with because he was by all, everything that I have understood, cool was really cool. You know, just a good dude, man, who just, brought a different gear to the game that we honestly haven't seen before with not only the blazing speed, but his incredible base running ability. Because lost in the speed is the fact that Cool Papa Bell may be the greatest base runner this sport has ever seen. To hear Buck O'Neill describe how he ran the bases, left-handed hitter, so he's coming out of the box running already, and that he had the uncanny ability to cut the bag on the inside, mm. that he was so adept at it that he could hit the inside corner of the bag with his left foot. And oftentimes the umpire would have thought that he missed the bag uh, and that he would run so low to the ground that he could literally smack the bag with his hand, could touch <laughs> the bag with his hand and not fall over. Some things are just God-given. Yeah. And Cool was given something. He comes into the Negro Leagues as a pitcher. And as fate would have it, he hurt his arm. When he hurt his arm, 
they moved him to the outfield. And the legend of James Thomas Cool Papa Bell was born. Uh -huh. And he used that speed to track down everything in the outfield. Didn't have a great throwing arm, but had a quick release. Mm. And because he could play so shallow, yeah, it made him one of the great defensive outfielders of all time. And the speed was just legendary. Yeah. And so it would have been great to sit down and just chop it up with cool. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like he'd be super interesting. Um my my final question for you. I am sure Satchel Page in our game today at his peak would have been if not the best, one of the top three, five pitchers in baseball. Which position player from the Negro Leagues in today's game do you think would have been the best fit, the most dominant, anything like that? Ooh, there are a bunch of them, man. But the name that comes to mind, I think, first and foremost, number one, Gibson as a catcher mm -hmm. would have been just as dominant today as he was back then. I tell people, if you want an indication of Josh Gibson physically, think Bo Jackson as a catch. Jeez. I would and not want to get into any any you know scraps with him at the plate or exactly. anything like that. No way. And, yeah. And, and, and you've got Josh Gibson. So he would have trans he would have he's a transcending kind of player. Oscar Charleston is a transcending player because he possessed great speed power, throwing arm, you know, the consummate five-tool guy. These are all great athletes who would have transcended this game. They would have been stars in any era of this game. And that's why I believe what Gibson was able to do as a catcher, to dominate both sides of the game, because lost in the power is the fact that he was a great hitter. He was to say that he was a power-hitting catcher is actually a little bit of a disservice. Josh Gibson was a great hitter with power. Uh-huh. And, and then a great defensive catcher. Not a good catcher. A great defensive catcher. That's a problem with so many of today's catchers. They're either all defense or all offense. Oh, but you, yeah. There yeah, are very few all other. around. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And Gibson was that rare commodity that combined them both. And there's no question that he would have transcended this game the way that it is played today. And uh, I can't even imagine some of these guys if they were privy to having the equipment, the training that is readily available. Uh, the nutrition, anything like new, that. Everything that comes along with our game today, as I was most recently walking through the new ballpark, they're of the Texas Rangers, and they're taking me through the clubhouse. And I am absolutely amazed at all the amenities that were provided for these guys. And it reminds me of a story, Kenny. I'm out in Petco Park when the great Dave Winfield used to do an annual salute to the Negro Leagues. And this particular year, Orlando Hudson, he when he was still playing, mm -hmm. He's taking me and several other Negro League players on a tour of the Petco Park facility. And as you can well imagine, these men were astounded. I mean, you got everything, hot tub, cold tub, <laughs> you got catering, you got weights, you got virtually everything. And anyway, we get to a portion of 
the facility and there was a guy on the trainer's table and the trainer was massaging his side. And one of the Negro League players looks at Orlando and says, well, what's wrong with him? He said, well, he's on the disabled list because he has a strained oblique. The Negro League player says, hell, I didn't even know I had an oblique. He just no, thought he had a, his side hurt. No, yeah, you are not going to be out of line up for a strained oblique. Yeah. Uh, and so, as you can well imagine, man, you think about if they had had all these things at their disposal with the physical gifts that they were blessed to have. When you hear me talk about the players from the Negro Leagues, I talk about them as some of the greatest athletes to ever play baseball because they could have played anything. Yeah. And, and so, but most of these players were transcending kinds of players. Amazing. Um, Mr. Kendrick, I thank you so, so much. And I, I'm sure I speak on behalf of the MLB The Show community, even though no one's anointed me the person to speak in, in, you know, for the community. But thank you for everything and all the effort that you've put into making this as incredible as it is. And this is only year one. I can only imagine <laughs> if there could possibly even be improvements made. I'm sure we'll see them. I'm just, I'm very excited to see where the future of this goes. And, and thank you for everything. Thank you so much. No, man, it's uh, it's been an honor to, to hang out with you. And again, I would be remiss if I didn't thank all of the folks over at San Diego Studios for embracing this the way that they have, providing this platform for people to fall in love with the Negro Leagues and this museum. And so it's been an amazing partnership. We are looking forward to the continuation of this partnership. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the show, the podcast. Make sure if you're ever in the area, go visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. Go say hi. Go go learn even more about the history or go tell Bob what you already knew about the history from playing <laughs> in the game. Um, Thank you guys again. Thank you for making it to the end of this episode, and I will talk to you all next week.